So, I just wanted to say, he is risen. He is still risen. Yes. So, what comes after Easter? <laughs> Spring break. Okay. I was thinking in the biblical narrative there. <laughs> well, yeah, Pentecost. Good, good, good. Well, in Matthew, right after the resurrection are these words. Jesus said, meet me in Galilee. This is the risen Lord had a message for his disciples. Meet me in Galilee. And so they went. When they saw them, saw him, the risen Lord, they worshiped, but some doubted. I always liked the honesty of the gospels. This is a, a mixed group that Jesus was working with. And he gave them all this amazing mission. The doubters and the convinced all together were sent on mission. Isn't that amazing? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The father vindicated his son. He was crucified and raised and the fathers gave him all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples, apprentices. Apprentices of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And church, throughout the ages, I am with you to the end of the age. And so what follows Easter? Well, there's the great declaration. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The victory's been won. Then there's a great commission, go and make apprentices of me among all nations. And then there's the great promise, and I am with you all, church, to the end of the age. That's a promise through the power of the Spirit, and that's why we need Pentecost, by the way. We go in the power and presence of the Spirit. And so the risen Lord has called his entire church throughout the ages to join him in his mission in the world Every one of us, young and old, rich and poor, broken and whole, doubters and convinced, are all invited, called, commissioned on this adventure, this resurrection community. The first thing Jesus does with his resurrection community is, is send them into a broken world. And every single one of us has a part in this. And so I wanted to ask, how does this really work? Like, how does... How do different people actually become disciples of Jesus? And that means we need to rewind back to the beginning of the Gospel of John. Now, I love transformation stories, particularly stories of how different types of people move from being closed or ignorant or even hostile to the Christian faith to a place of curiosity, being willing to explore, increasingly becoming more open to personally experiencing and following Jesus. I actually did my doctoral work on this process of how people move into the, those stages of discovering Jesus. And I just love stories. Last week, we heard Chantel's story last week, which is amazing about how she moved through those stages. Do you remember that? The Easter Sunday? And how she's still in that journey, and there's room for her here with us. We saw how she's moving, her and Mike, moving from places of despair to places of hope, from, place of, from confusion to clarity, from loneliness to community. So, do you know someone 
that needs to know Jesus? Do you know someone who needs that transformation in their life? Raise your hand if you know someone. Yeah. So during the sermon today, you have permission to be distracted. I want to invite you to take this little card out of your bulletin right now with me. It looks like this. And your assignment during this sermon is to ask the Holy Spirit to give you at least three names of people that need to know Jesus. And I've sort of given you three little circles, like a colleague, family member, a neighbor, or friend. And by the end of the sermon, my prayer is that you have two or three people in each of those little circles. Um, are you with me? All right. Now, last week we did bingo during the sermon. This week we're doing a prayer card during the sermon. Yeah, I'm assuming you have pencils and pens. <laughs> I'm sorry. Think of those names. Think of, think of them in your head. There are pencils on some of the backs of the, the chairs. So in John 1, we discover how different individuals are first introduced to Jesus. It's so cool. Starting with John the Baptist himself and how they began to follow him. And so uh, let's just look at this first text and I want you to, uh, when I say, like, when I do this, it's your part, okay? That means you need to be John. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Good. That's your part. He is the one I'm talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am. For he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah. But I, I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove from heaven and resting on him. I didn't know he was the one. But when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, The one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one. I just love John for so many ways. Uh, he's so honest about who he's not. You know, when people asked him, are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? He says, nope, nope, nope. He says, I'm just a pointer. I'm just a pointer. And he's honest about the fact that he didn't even recognize Jesus. He didn't even recognize Jesus until the Holy Spirit pointed him out. So when you think of the community of God in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the evangelist of the Trinity. He's the one that's drawing us into that circle of love. Without the Holy Spirit's witness, we just don't get it. Everything is blurry like you are right now. So when I go in for my annual eye exam, there's one test that I absolutely detest. It's the peripheral vision test. It's where you have to put your head up into this machine and you hold on to this clicker and they give you this instruction to stare at a dot. And while you're staring at that dot, all these little tiny, very light dots appear around the periphery, and you're supposed to push the button. And when the button clicks, it makes a really big, like a foghorn sound, 
which everybody in the waiting room can hear what, how you're doing. <laughs> and I'm looking at the dot, and I'm not seeing anything. And so just between me and you, I've decided to start cheating on that test. I just look around, and I'm just bump, 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 bump. And, and, and it's always fun. It prints out, and she said, you're doing really well. And I said, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, uh, without the Holy Spirit, we are bound to this really narrow focus. And that focus really is our own personal and cultural narrow experience that we have, our bias. We're all biased. We all have preconceptions. Without the Holy Spirit, we miss the profound identity and grandeur and significance of Jesus Christ. Amen? It's, it's only as the Holy Spirit gives us his lenses that we start to see how majestic and beautiful this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is. And the Holy Spirit enables that to happen. He did it for John. He's done it for us. He's doing it for us. And we don't all get it all at once. It doesn't like go, Shh. usually it's a process. And this passage, I, I, it just blew me away as I was preparing for this message. This passage has five different Greek words for the word see, to see. You know, the, the English says see, 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 or look, look, look. But there's five to seven different Greek words for the word to see. And I've highlighted some of them in the text on the screen. I believe John wants to show us in this passage how people move through a conversion journey as they become disciples of Jesus and how they see more and more clearly every step of the way. I believe the Holy Spirit's actually moving you right now this morning to see him more clearly. Can we pray right now for the Holy Spirit to do that? We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here and you are the evangelist of the Trinity and you are here to open our lenses up to see Jesus like we've never seen him before. And so open our eyes, focus our hearts, engage our wills, touch our emotions, Help us to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. And so I, I tried to put these different Greek words into sort of a progression because I love, I just kind of really get into models and stuff. Forgive me. But so the, one of the words is just a, a word where I just, I, I, I see meaning I notice. I just sort of notice something. Like we all, during the day, we see a lot of stuff, but we don't really look at it. Are you with me? Yeah. This is like that. Um, and, and so it's like, may, maybe I catch a glimpse of God during the day, but it's in and out of my brain, you know. But then we move to, I, from I just notice to I look. I look is where I, I turn and I, I actually intentionally notice that thing and focus on it versus just catching a glimpse. And then I move from looking to saying, I want to follow what God's doing here. I want to follow Jesus and what he's doing into my life. And then I begin to experience 
experience. That's another level of seeing in the Gospel of John, is I see in a way, not just cognitively, but I actually see through experience firsthand. And usually that, we're going to see in the text, involves realizing that as I experienced Jesus, I realized he saw me before I saw him, and he knows me. And then I believe. That moves me to believe. And that seeing moves me to abide with him, which means remain with him. And then it moves into gazing. And that's a word of seeing uh, that's used in John 1.14. And the word became flesh. And we have seen his glory. That word is uh, we have gazed upon. So now we're moving from just noticing to looking to gazing or beholding. We have beheld his glory. It's like uh, when, when I go out to uh, Estero Bluffs, I behold the glory of the coastline. You know, I, I, I gaze. And then there's the grasping. I gaze and then I grasp. Oh my gosh, I think I get it now. Which is the seeing that John says, I now see, I now grasp. But that's not finished. Because we want to help others see. And that's where we become witnesses to help others in their journey of seeing. Are you guys with me? This is a, a, a journey of perception that we see in John chapter 1. And it gets clearer and clearer and clearer. The Holy Spirit's like a telescope. And so John says, I didn't get it at first, but now I do. It was blurry before, but now I see. Then he declares what the Spirit has revealed to him about Jesus. He says, a man is coming after me who's far greater than I am, for he existed before me. He is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the Chosen One of God. Literally, John 1.29 reads this. In the definitive, the definitive articles are uh, five, they appear five times in that verse. But behold the Lamb of the God, the one who is taking away, by the way, it's the present, who is taking away the sin of the world. It's like, you know, John, the, the apostle, is trying to really be definitive about Jesus here. In other words, Jesus is not one among many saviors. Jesus is the Savior. He's not one of many lambs. He's the lambs. And by the way, the Lamb of God in Scripture is referred to in, in multiple ways. The Lamb at Passover was sacrificed during that annual celebration of their liberation from where? Slavery in Egypt. So that idea of liberation. And then the temple Lamb upon which Israel's sin was laid on the head of the Lamb before it was sacrificed. And the warrior lamb of Revelation. Revelation speaks of a warrior lamb who's going to overcome evil. And this is what's cool. John is declaring that Jesus fulfills them all. Jesus has come to free the world from slavery, to bear its guilt, and overcome all evil. Amen? So in our journey towards faith, we inevitably have to face this scandalous reality, which is pretty scandalous in our culture which is Jesus of Nazareth is not one among many saviors. That's a good place to say amen. Jesus is not one among many saviors. 
<laughs> or religious teachers or messiahs or spiritual masters. Jesus is the unique and sole savior of the entire world. <laughs> and John says, I now get it, but I didn't get it before. It took the Holy Spirit, and it takes the Holy Spirit to bring us to that point. And so we see in this little graphic, your card looks a little bit like this, of how JB, uh, that's John the Baptist, <laughs> is pointed to Jesus through whom? Through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. Uh, he's actually not a dove. He's a person. But that's a helpful symbol. So the Holy Spirit gives John the ability to see Jesus. So we're going to build on this as we go through this passage. As soon as John recognized Jesus, what's he do? He points his colleagues to Jesus. Listen to this text. The following day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. And so look what's happening now. JB has introduced his two disciples to Jesus, one of whom has the name of Andy. I notice Andy's at the center of everything, isn't he? Andy, I hope you heard that. <laughs> and so what happens? Jesus looked around and saw them following. And says, what do you want? He asked. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying and they remained with him the rest of the day. So, Let's review. The Holy Spirit points John to Jesus, then John points two of his own disciples to Jesus, and they begin to follow him. And then Jesus turns to them and says, what do you want? The first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John come in the form of a question. What are you seeking? Literally. What are you looking for? I think this is one of the most profound questions in all human experience, in philosophy, in theology, in psychology, in psychiatry, in sociology, what are we looking for? What are human beings looking for? What do we really want? I think it's a beautiful and profound question. Uh, Viktor Frankl wrote about it in Dachau Prison when he looked at how people were surviving there. And he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. What am I looking for? I think is a very important question we need to actually ask on a regular basis. What am I actually looking for? And at times, I think we Christians try to give answers to the world before we've taken the time to find out what questions they're asking. We don't listen long enough to find out the question. That's why, like, on the first session of Alpha, we all have the opportunity to respond to a question. I love this question. It's, if there was a God, we don't like to presume in Alpha, and you could ask God anything, what would one question you can ask? And you can ask anything, no shame. And the beautiful, big, glorious questions are asked. But one of our more senior members of my small group, um, who's in 
their 90s, uh, said, I just honestly, uh, my question is, why am I here? Why am I still here? What's my purpose in life? Can you relate to that question? What's my purpose? And, and we just stopped. It was like a holy moment. This person had the courage in their 90s to say, why am I here? It's a beautiful question. And so John's two disciples respond, well, where are you staying? In other words, their, their longing behind their question was, we want to spend time with you. We want to go to the place where God is. And of course, Jesus says, come in, come and see. So they went, it says it was four o'clock at p.m. So they went and spent the day with him. Now you need to remember that in the Jewish calendar, the day doesn't start at sunrise, it starts at sunset. Did you know that? The Jewish day starts at sunset. So Jewish families typically ushered in a new day with supper together. Dinner was the sort of like uh, launch of the new day that extended into the next day. Meals uh, were central to the life of Jesus. I've shared this many times, and I believe they're central today to the kingdom of God. It's so, especially in an increasingly digitized culture where we're becoming more and more tribalized into our internet soundboard, you know, what do you call it? Groups. Uh, having an actual face-to-face, -face, slow meal with other human beings is becoming a very endangered species today. And I think the church, if I might preach a bit, uh, has a beautiful opportunity to reintroduce the gift of table community to a world that's longing for it. So Jesus did that. He understood what happens when human beings gather around the table. So imagine the conversation at that first meal with Jesus. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. Dale Bruner says, this little gathering, we don't know who else was there, was the birth of the church. It was the first gathering of disciples with Jesus. Must have been so profound because look what happens. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Can you guys read this with me? Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. And Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. So let's review that wonderful slide there, the graphic. So the Holy Spirit points JB to Jesus, right? And the first thing JB does is to point his disciples, including Andy, to Jesus, right? And after Andy and his buddies spend the day with Jesus, the first thing one of these disciples, Andy, does is bring who? Simon, his brother to Jesus, and point him. And Andrew declares, we found the Messiah. I don't know what happened at that meal, but they went from this site to this site over dinner. And so he brings his brother to meet Jesus. And friends, I just want to tell you, the best thing you can do for people you love is bring them to Jesus. It's the best thing you can do. And so Andrew's brother will become one of the pillars of the New Testament movement. Very few people know about Andrew, but many people know about Peter. 
Now, I recently heard about a, name, a man by the name of Albert McKakin. He was 24 years of old age, and he had become a Christian, and he was really excited. And this is a farming community. He heard that there was an event going on where someone was speaking about Jesus. And he decided he would invite all his friends, giving them a ride in his dairy truck, which was really a hip thing to do in that day, to ride in his dairy truck, because he was the only one who had a truck. And there was a guy he really wanted to come. This guy was a farmer's son, but he really wasn't interested. He had a lot of girlfriends, and he was really good looking, and he's just not interested. Then Albert thought, how can I get him to come? So he eventually said to him, look, would you like to drive the truck? So he got his buddy to drive the truck with the guys to the meeting. And he just said, okay, I'll drive, but I just want you to know I'm not going in. Um, but by the end of the evening, he was curious, and he came in, and he was spellbound. And he came back night after night. And then the last night, the speaker said, look, if you want to give your life to Jesus, come to the front. And this farmer's son got up and went to the front. And since this day, that person has spoken to 210 million people about Jesus. And through media, half the world's population, his name is Billy Graham. Now, many people know about Billy Graham, but how many people know about Albert McCracken? <laughs> many people know about Peter. How many people know about Andrew? Now, I don't know how many Billy Grahams are in this room, but there's a lot of Andrews here. Amen? There's a lot of Andrews, because Andrews just say, hey, uh, just come and see. Just come and see. We can't all be Billy, Gra Billy Grahams, but we can be Albert McMakins. <laughs> we can be the one who says, come and see. So let's rewind back and see what happens to Simon when he first meets Jesus. Let's read it together. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now listen, now the Greek word for look is gazing. And it's being used about Jesus as he sees Simon for the first time. And he's saying, Simon, I see you. I see you, Elaine. I see you, Bob. I see you. See you. I see you, Mike. I see you, Wayne. What is it like to be seen by someone? He sees him. But then he says, You will become Cephas, which is the same uh, in Aramaic, the same word for Petros, which is the same word for rock. Now, when Jesus first encounters Simon, he's, he's, he, this is an audacious thing in Middle Eastern culture to give somebody a name. That's a job only of dad. It's, it's a job conveying authority. And the Hebrew scriptures gives us great, like some, some stories about the significance of names and the changing of names. Can you remember some? 
These are almost always associated with life-defining moments, usually connected to a profound experience of the presence of God and his gracious call in their lives. Remember Abram, when he experienced the presence of God and the promise of God? And he, he says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations, so I'm going to give you a new name, Abraham. And then remember Jacob, who on his encounter with the Lord, after he wrestled with the Lord, was called Israel, one who struggles with God. And the name of Jesus itself, Yeshua, means God saves. In the Hebrew understanding of name, names have to do with what God is doing to mold you into a new identity. And we know from the Gospels that Peter was anything but rock-like. Would you agree? I mean, he is so brash and unstable and unreliable. But not until the coming of the Spirit does he begin to live into that new name and he becomes the rock through which the entire Jewish community begins to discover the resurrected Lord. Imagine being brought to Jesus for the first time and he looks at you and he says, I see you, Eunice, and I'm giving you a new identity. I wonder what Peter's reaction was. We don't know. It doesn't say. Let's read the next script uh, on the text. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said, come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Philip's hometown. I love this. It says Jesus found Philip. That gives you an idea that Jesus is searching for Philip. Like it's not just an accidental encounter. And he says, come follow me. Now, it's really important to kind of back up and understand in ancient Near East, Jesus did not invent the idea of discipleship. The Greek and Roman philosophers had disciples. Jewish rabbis had disciples. John the Baptist even had disciples. And he, he encouraged his own disciples to follow Jesus. And typically, disciples would select their masters. He's like signing up to study with a professor, right? Jesus turned the tables on this and says, no, no, no. I do the selecting. I do the choosing. I take the initiative. And that word follow is just a beautiful Greek word. I want to teach you some Greek right now. It's akaluthē. Can you say that with me? Akaluthē. And it comes from the root word kaluthos, which is road. Road. It literally means accompany me along a road. In other words, life with Jesus is not a static existence. It involves movement. It involves progress. It involves going somewhere with Jesus. It's way more than meeting with him for 90 minutes on Sunday morning. He wants to take you into the whole world. He wants, he's calling you to follow him into your everyday life, into your work life, into your family life, into your financial life, into your pain, into your joy into your neighborhood, into this city. Following Jesus is a movement with Jesus into every part of life, friends. It's not just a meeting on Sunday morning. Can I, some, somebody say amen to that? That's what following Jesus. Because every square inch of this universe belongs to him, and he wants to redeem it. And he wants to use us. And so the first thing Philip does after spending time with Jesus is what? He wants to bring someone too. So let's read it together. 
Philip went to look for Nathanael. You notice that? Jesus looked for Philip. Now Philip's looking for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Now get this. I love this. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Say that with me. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And what does Philip say? Come and see for yourself. Now, I grew up in Oxnard. And there was a rough part of town where none of us would be caught hanging out. It was across the tracks, literally, called La Colonia. It was known for gang violence and poverty. Many questioned, can anything good come out of Colonia? Actually, when I, when I moved to Ventura, I found out people in Ventura said, can anything good come out of Oxnard? <laughs> and then I met some people in Santa Barbara who said, can anything good come out of Ventura? Everybody's got this attitude, but anyways. <laughs> and I won't get into the Oceano, Grover Beach, Arroyo Grande, as we go up the hill issue. I won't touch on that, but. But listen, I, I had grown up drawing conclusions about the people in Colonia without ever meeting one for myself until I grew up. And I met some amazing people who lived and ministered in Colonia. And I realized that I had been living my whole life with a bias. Because, and it was because I never met an actual person in that group. Do you ever struggle with that or is it just me? It's so easy to live our lives with prejudice. And I think like Nathaniel, many people today draw conclusions about Jesus without investigating who he is firsthand. Can anything good come out of Christianity? Can anything good come out of the church, the Bible, or the evangelical world? I mean, you know, I, I spent some time with my young hip kids recently, and they live in a culture that is really suspicious of Christianity today. I mean, can anything good come out of it is the question that's being asked by all of their friends and peers. And so, like Nathaniel, there are good questions, and sometimes they have good reasons for those questions because we Christians have really misrepresented our Jesus. Amen. So I think some of the first thing to do is not debate them and say, no, I think I, think I would agree with you that, that we've made a mess of things at times. But notice Philip doesn't get into a debate at Nathaniel's door about how he shouldn't be biased. He doesn't even try to argue the issue. What does he do? He just says, come and see for yourself and draw your own conclusions. He just invites. And that's something you all can do, right? You don't have to argue people into the kingdom. You don't have to debate them. You don't have to confront their biases. Let Jesus do that work. That's the Holy Spirit's work. So I want to give you some kind of illustration on how to come and see in your everyday lives. The, the most powerful one is when you say to your friend, neighbor, colleague, come and see the difference Jesus Christ is making in my life. That's the most authentic. Don't send them to some other place, come and see. In other words, you're saying, I want to open my life up to you and show the difference Jesus is making in me. 
because he's alive, in how he's working in my family, how he's working in our places of pain, how he's working as we face illness, as we face struggle, as we face the challenges of raising kids in this culture and aging. And you just come and see. And you begin to share honestly the stories of how Jesus is making a difference. How do you argue with that? That's the best way you can do come and see. Another one is come and see through, like, I don't know if you've ever done this with a colleague, or would you mind if we just prayed about that right now? I'm talking about a colleague who's not a follower of Jesus. And say, can we like see what Jesus might want to do with this? And you actually stop and pray for them. And before they even believe in Jesus, Jesus touches them. And you get to go, come and see. He's working in you. It's powerful. Just through praying with them and for them. There's also come and see through the Gospels. I have some amazing experiences recently, especially with some young Iranian Persians who were curious. And I said, would you like to come and see the Jesus? You know, we in the church, man, we, we've shrink-wrapped Jesus and distorted him sometimes through the ages. And we need to look at the Gospels again, see how majestic he is. Would you like to read the Gospel of Luke with me? And by the time we got to Luke 8, all three of them said, we want to know him. We have been a person like that person because they just saw the unvarnished, beautiful, amazing Jesus of the Gospel of Luke, and he is compelling. And, and all we did is read the stories, and they said, we, I want to know him. Another way to say come and see is come and see through Alpha. Join me on Alpha. Hey, it's a set of dinners, good food, and a chance to kind of explore what you think and believe about faith. And there's a weekend on the Holy Spirit where you can experience God. Another one is, I think, is really powerful today, especially in our young, with younger people who are justice-related. Like, they're saying, it's great that you guys do all this religious stuff, but what are you doing to heal a broken world? Is come and see as we go feed folks at People's Kitchen. Come and join us. Inviting your non-Christian friends to come and see as we do Morph Project as we care for elderly people. Are you with me there? And, and see how Jesus cares for the broken people that you care about too. That's, I think, one of the greatest evangelistic opportunities in our culture today among people who are under 40 is would you like, before we invite them to church, we invite them to join us as we help bring wholeness to our city. And as they work side by side with us about something they care about, they see Jesus. And it's hard to argue with. So those are some ways to come and see. And so back to the text. As they approached, Jesus said, and by the way, this is Nathaniel who has the bias, remember? Can anything good come out of? In other words, he's got an attitude. But listen to Jesus' attitude. As they approached... Jesus said, now here's a genuine son of <laughs> Israel, a man of complete integrity. What are Jesus' first words to this man who has prejudice against him? You are a man of complete integrity. There's no deception in you. Nathaniel just says, how do you know me? And Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. <laughs> He's starting to feel naked <laughs> before Jesus. Then Nathaniel exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. His little you know, peripheral vision went like that real quick. 
because he realized Jesus knew him before he knew Jesus. So powerful. Does this sound familiar? This sounds like Simon, who had an encounter with Jesus. Imagine being brought to Jesus. For the first time, Jesus looks intently at you and says, I see you. And I see the gift inside of you, of God. I knew you before you ever knew me. What would that be like to you? Imagine all your biases and prejudices just melting away. He sees me. I remember I was, I was at a season just where I was. You ever go through a dry period in your journey with Jesus? I was a dry period in my journey with Jesus, and I was involved with a team that was running Alpha. We went to an Alpha conference down in L.A., and uh, the team came from England, from London, to lead that conference. And during the conference, they like to not just talk about Alpha, they actually model what happens on an Alpha weekend and how they pray for people. And so they invited us to be, receive prayer, and I said, well, I, I could use prayer. I definitely would take prayer. And I went up, and during that prayer time, a man on the British prayer team came up to me. He was very short, and he had no arms. He, he had been a thalidomide baby, and he had these little stubs. And he was short, and uh, he just came up to me as part of the prayer team, and he laid his stub on my shoulder. And he began to pray for me in his wonderful British accent, things that only Kathy knows specific things in my life that only Kathy knows. And I just, I just began to weep from the depth of my gut going, you see, you see, you see me. And you sent this guy with no arms from England to come and pray for me. Things that only my wife knows. You see me. I'm naked before you. You know what? I went back and those situations I was facing didn't change, but I knew God saw them and it reframed how I lived within those situations. Is this making sense? Is knowing God sees you transform Simon to Peter? Knowing God sees you transform Nathaniel from prejudice to worship. And I believe there's just a whole host of people out here in the five cities that you interact with your everyday life, in the neighborhoods, in the families, and workplace, and they desperately need to know that God sees them right where they're at. And as they get to know how God sees them, they begin to see him. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so Jesus is he, he, he's not finished with uh, Nathaniel. Uh, can you read this with me? Jesus asked him, Do you believe this just because I told you had, I had seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth. You will see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. So what's this all about, Stairway to Heaven? So Nathaniel, who was deeply rooted in his Hebrew scriptures, immediately made the connection because he knew the Jacob story. The one who got a new name. Remember, we were talking about Jacob. During his flight from his brother 
Esau, whom he had deceived out of his birthright. By the way, Jacob in the Hebrew sounds just like the word deceiver. How's that for a name? He stopped to rest in the desert, and during that resting time, he, he had a dream. And in that dream, he saw a stairway resting on earth and reaching to heaven, and on it were angels of God, mighty warriors, ascending and descending. Immediately, he heard the Lord's voice reaffirming the promises that I will bless you, the promise to Abraham and to his father uh, Isaac, and I will make you a great nation, and through your descendants, I will bless the nations." And he was just, he, was, he, he woke up in awe. And he said, this is a holy place. This is the house of God. And he called it what? Bethel. With this background in mind, Jesus' word to Nathaniel was bold, audacious, controversial, and profound. Jesus is claiming to be the stairway between heaven and earth, friends. Are you with me? He's claiming to be the Bethel, the house of God, the place where heaven and earth come together. And he's saying you, Nathaniel, will see it. And the Greek word for see there is you will behold, you will gaze upon, not just notice, you will get it. He's saying you're going to get it. And so look at how different people are introduced to Jesus. Isn't it beautiful? Who's orchestrating all of it, by the way? Look on the left. The Holy Spirit. But who is he using? He's using ordinary people, like we saw today, ordinary people used to bless God. He used Andrew to point his brother to Jesus. He used Philip to point his biased neighbor to Jesus. He's used John to point his disciples to Jesus. Can he use you? Amen? Look what happened within 300 years that the Holy Spirit moved this motley crew of disciples to a point of just this come and see, this come and see ministry. By 325 AD, every major city in the Roman Empire had been exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ. And it was all this contagious come and see by ordinary people. Randy Stark, great historian, talks about it was ordinary people. It wasn't these great campaigns by these executives. It was ordinary people saying, come and see, come and see. And so what the last slide is, I want to invite you to go back to that card. And I want to invite you to think about who, you know, you notice there's one thing in common here, how the, the, the message of Jesus is traveling. It's traveling along established networks of relationships that are right in front of our noses. It's like you don't need to go across the world. Just look in front of your nose at the relationships he's planted you in, in neighborhoods and in workplaces and in family. That's where the news of Jesus spreads. And so I invite you to complete your card sometime today with the names of people that need to know Jesus there's a link to some videos that are amazing on how to uh, engage people in a post-Christian culture that's relevant and thoughtful. It's a really good video series called The Five Thresholds. You'll see the link there. But I just invite you to begin to pray by name at least once a week for your come and see list. And then watch the Holy Spirit work in their lives.
And you wake up in the morning and say, Lord, how would you like me to join you, Holy Spirit, in what you're doing in John's life, in Mary's life? How can I help them see that you see them? Are you with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you see us, that you know us, and that you call us to experience you, to follow you, to grasp, to have our vision expanded of who you are and how grandeur, the grandeur and immensity of your character, your identity, your work. We just ask that in the five cities, Lord, you give us a vision for those that, like Nathaniel, are wondering, can anything good come out of the church? Can anything good come out of Christianity? Help us to point them to the good that you're doing in our lives. One person at a time. 